This is a sermon podcast from Ashland First United Methodist Church in Ashland, Oregon. Visit us online at ashlandmethodist.org for more sermons like this, church information, and how to get involved. Ashland Methodist, a community of open hearts, open minds, and open doors. been expecting these very long readings. Look out, it's going to be long and it's going to be ugly. (laughs) But there's so much joy to be had as well. And we begin a new story. And I love the opportunity to tell a new story. So that is what I'm going to do. How many of you have never heard the story of the loaves and the fishes? Am I right? This is like Church 101. Is there an earlier class than 101? Church 98. (laughs) Right? There's something truly captivating and wonderful about a story where there isn't enough, and suddenly not only is there enough, but there's so much more than enough. And in a time, too, long ago, when people were really hungry, when, when there was disruption, where the crowds followed Jesus, some of them doing quite well, but many not at all well, that to be fed was this sign of miracle that they just couldn't conceive of and how wonderful that was. So this story actually doesn't begin on the grass where we all imagine it, on the Sea of Galilee. It begins a story earlier, the story of the death of John the Baptist. The way that our Bible weaves our stories together, we really sometimes forget to look ahead and behind and see where does this story fit into our understanding of what Jesus is doing. John the Baptist has been arrested. John the Baptist, who was the one who baptized Jesus, the one in whose teachings Jesus stepped from. Jesus elevated. John the Baptist was a tremendously important figure at the time, much more well-known than Jesus of Nazareth in, in some places. And Jesus, not only is John the Baptist through Luke, links him with Jesus by family, that John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin, And that's his way of explaining how deep this tie is, that they were family. But Jesus in John, we see, steps out of the discipleship group that had surrounded John. This is a deep, deep connection. Remember we talked about honor and shame, how a certain group holds a certain amount of honor, and that's really important to them, and it gives them some power to move around the world in a meaningful way. Well, Herod has just literally arrested one of the perceived top leaders, a man from whom Jesus could even trace his spiritual lineage since it is John who baptized him. And he has had him arrested and in a very shameful way killed through the urgings of Herod's daughter, Herodia. He was killed by being beheaded and having his head brought to Herodia in a basket. Ick. Right? Ick. Our stories don't sugarcoat this because it was awful what happened. This is not an example to follow. This is something to say, 
what can be done about this? How can we live differently than this? How can we deny Herod the honor he is now going to claim? The word is out. John the Baptist is defeated. That whatever mojo power Herod has is clearly stronger than the power that was protecting John. The movement is shaken. God did not save John the Baptist from arrest, from a dancing, spoiled girl. In those days, that was horrible, really, really humiliating. Now, I actually love dancing, so that's not going to be my thing. But if we go back to the story and we imagine Herod in his palace and we imagine the family vying for honor and dignity and status and power because they were the Herods, that's what they did. They took over all the fertile land of Galilee, pretty much, handing it out to friends and family that they may have it all. And they have just taken down the leader of what had been a growing movement against that kind of authority. Right at the beginning of the story of the loaves and the fishes, we hear that Jesus had to go out into a quiet place, that it affected him deeply, that he needed space, he needed some time to mourn, he needed some time to figure it out. If he was going to be just an adversary, he could have hit back, right? Like so many of the stories in the Bible, we have people hit each other back. Jesus does not grab a sword, something everybody expects him to be doing at any moment, and it never happens. Jesus retreats to a quiet place and thinks, how can I show something different? Where does real power lie? So, he does never travel alone anymore. Not only does he have his followers or his disciples, but behind him come all these folks from the cities who have heard about him, and they they come for healing. They come to see who this Jesus is. They come for, uh, for sickness and also for teaching. In the In Mark's story, Jesus looks out at them and says, they're like sheep without a shepherd. Should should Herod be their shepherd? Was Herod their shepherd? Not at all. Not at all. And yet there they were, all of them in need, and he began to teach them. And in Matthew, he looks out on all the crowd, and he sees how many of them need healing. And he comes forward, and he heals them. And being sick is a form of powerlessness in this culture that there's sometimes this fear that when you're sick that God has abandoned you. And let's face it, sometimes we worry about that ourselves, right? What did I do to deserve this, we say? But sometimes sickness is just sickness. And Jesus lays hands on them and heals them. And then the evening comes and people are hungry. It's time to, it's time to eat. And the disciples who have not eaten yet because they've fallen Jesus around, they haven't had a chance to eat either. You know, they're ready to, let's kick these folks out. You know, they're done. We're done here, right? You know, class is over. Clinic is closed. 
You know, this, this guy, we're, we're kind of hungry over here. So they say to Jesus, you know, send the crowds away so we can eat. You know, they, Jesus says, well, you know, how much bread do you have? You know, they're like, well, go, go send them away. <laughs> so we get two, two different versions of give them something to eat. So first of all, in Matthew, Jesus says to them, uh, the disciples say to Jesus, let, let them go into town so that they can buy food for themselves. Like, it's not our responsibility. We're not having anything to do with them. And G Jesus actually says, and this is an imperative voice, you give them something to eat. Ugh. Like, what, us? Like, um, and they replied, we have nothing here besides two loaves, five loaves and two fish. Now, this sounds really polite, doesn't it? This is a really polite answer. But Lord, we have, no it's a little whiny maybe, we have nothing but five loaves and two fish. Well, this translation is very sweet. But the very first word in the Greek out of the mouths of these men is not. <laughs> not. No. A better translation might be, what? No, we don't have but five loaves and two fish, right? There's a lot more pushback there. Like, are you crazy? We're hungry. We've been with you all day. I'm really not sure what you're up to, but if you want us to share our meager five loaves, there are 12 of us, so we're only getting like less than half a loaf as it is. You know, what are you talking about? I just love that. Ook, no, what? So it's funny how our translations can trick us. We already know the end of the story. So we can make a nice, polite response from the disciples, right? There's nothing at risk for us. We already know everybody gets to eat. The disciples in this story, they don't know that. They're hungry, right? Anybody sat next to somebody who hasn't had lunch and you hear, and they're so embarrassed, they kind of sit over there. And if you know them well, they're like, oh, sorry. And then you can make jokes about banana pudding or whatever you want to, uh, which probably doesn't help, but tides you over. But their tummies are rumbling. They're hungry. And anybody get hangry? <laughs> right? So, so this, this immediate, like, not, I imagine that's kind of a hangry response. Shall we pin it on Peter? Because, you know, he's often the one who, who does that. So this is a real conversation that takes place between the disciples and Jesus. This isn't like a pat answer from them. This is a pushback, like, what? We only have five loaves and two bread. And then he says to them, in the way that Jesus does, in the imperative, bring them here to me. Like, okay, you guys can't figure this out. Just bring it over here. I got this. So Mark, <laughs> sorry. Mark has something different, slightly different way of doing this. Mark, also, we have Jesus say, y'all, and it's plural, you, so it's all, it's y'all give them something to eat, right? It's on you. You can't just send them away. And they say, should we go off and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Like, come on, like, did, we're going to go spend our denarii on this? So this is interesting that there are a lot of coins in circulation at this time. Why does Mark choose the denarius? I found that interesting, so I dug into that a little bit. So the denarius, the denarii, uh, are coins struck by the empire. 
they would have the image pressed on them of the current emperor. It is coinage in the emperor's name. Who is buying the bread and the fish? By whose power? In whose authority? And in whose image? Right? Caesar. So 200 denarii is a tremendous amount of money. That's like 200 work days for a regular laborer. So it was going to be a lot of money. But, um, and so the protest makes sense, but when we start thinking about the denarii and why they choose this coinage, um, I'll use an example for, once again, we're going to slip back into time. We've got five loaves and two fish. We're at the Sea of Galilee. Is that where we are? Actually, I don't remember exactly. We're in a fishing village. I know that much because there are fish. It's really hard to get fish outside of a fishing village. So um, fish is part of the meal to be shared here. And fish are thought to be creatures who have a spirit that obeys um, more powerful spirits. This is just the way things worked then. So God had tremendous divine authority and the other spirits were in allegiance with, with that authority or they were in allegiance with other authorities. So if you were, you cannot serve two masters, remember? If you're in allegiance with the emperor, who are you not in allegiance with? God. You can't do both of those things. You can't put your power and your trust in the emperor's coinage and trust your abundance to God. The two aren't... Now, Western minds, all of us are like, no, I've worked that out a long time ago. I know exactly how that works. But long ago, these were very clear lines. And fish had an allegiance, a spiritual allegiance. It was said of the emperor Domitian, I think I might be pronouncing that wrong, but I'm going to lean into that and just say emperor Domitian, um, that fish wanted to lick his hand. That's how powerful he was. It was thought that fish wanted to be caught. They responded to the, um, the will of whatever power they followed. So that they leapt into your net, it was not because each fish is like a little self, like they're not a little Nietzsche fish, right? Ah, you know, I'm the great self. No, not at all. These are collective animals that follow the will of God or the will of whatever it is they're in allegiance to. I know this is complicated, but... But it's kind of cool. Anybody ever thought about fish being an allegiance to anything? Like your goldfish that swim around your bowl? Like, what is that thing in allegiance to? Like, nothing. Nothing. It's an allegiance to going around and around in the bowl or swimming through. But the idea that the earth is alive and that creatures have wills and spirits and that those wills and spirits can be in allied in good ways or negative ways, that people can use what is abundant, what is part of the earth in really harmful ways, we see with the empire who uses its power like Herod did to scoop up for themselves, to demand allegiance so that the fish even a lie to that power, rather than using the, rather than being part of the kingdom of God, 
where we care about each other rather than just collecting for ourselves. These coins herald uh, the emperor. They are glory to the emperor. And that's what they do. Um, when we think of Jesus as a holy man, when he makes this miracle, that's what he is. And it works directly against the claim. We hear this word, son of God. And in our Christology, in the way we think of who Jesus is, sometimes we take that very literally, that Jesus is literally the material, physical son of God, the way that my son is my, my son. And, you know, this was a phrase people used then to try to name something inconceivable and amazing. That Jesus of Nazareth functioned, modeled, lived as what a son of God might be, a true one. But there was so much competition for this title. Domitian claimed to be not only master, but also God. And he insisted that people call him that. Dominus et Deus. You are master and God. Can you imagine? How much of that is cachet, his trying like Herod to be the most honorific man? Or how much of it is delusion? But while he creates a false sense of abundance for himself, he creates scarcity everywhere else. Everywhere else there is scarcity. And we have to be very, very careful when we think about what it is we are investing in when we hold that coin. Who do we think holds the power there and why? So, Jesus says to the disciples, how much bread do y'all have? Go on, take a look. This is directly in counter to this idea of cash and denarii. Directly a statement, directly to what they had brought up as the only way forward is to buy fully into, literally, the power of empire through spending coinage and money. Jesus turns to them and says, because nobody has money. If they went around that crowd, they wouldn't get 200 denarii. Jesus says to them, how much bread do you have? Let's just start there. How much bread do you have? And they said, five loaves and two fish. They had to go off and check, come back. Probably measured the loaves. Well, there's one, it's a big loaf, but the rest of them aren't that big, Lord. There's no way we're feeding everybody. And Jesus says, sit them down into groups. And so they do. And Jesus takes the bread, and he blesses it. And he gives it to the disciples, and he says, pass this out. And he takes the fish, and he blesses it. And he gives it to the disciples, and he says, pass it out. And in the miracle, food, food is given and shared and eaten. I wonder how many other people had a couple loaves stashed away in the back of the robe. How much more fish they were by the countryside, maybe had been purchased on the way to hear Jesus speak. How much bread might have been shared out of gratitude of being healed that day? 
so much sharing goes on that there are 12 baskets of food left over, which is an amazing thing. Jesus takes that economy and he turns it on his head. Instead of about hoarding, cashing in, what are you invested in? What do you think that coin brings you into allegiance with? Who are you loyal to? It just brings it right back down to the village center of life where we sit together in groups and we talk over a meal and we share what we have. It just couldn't be more simple. This week, I went to a um, conference, tra- a training, three-day training uh, called Peace Circle Training. And um, I went there struggling. I, I don't often feel like a peacemaker. I am a, um, obviously a, a woman of faith, and uh, I believe Jesus when he asks us to be peacemakers, but I struggle with that. Um, I can be incredibly intense, incredibly opinionated, and I'd just as soon be Joan of Arc and pick up that sword and get on a horse and ride into battle as to listen to somebody go on and on and try to make peace with them when they're doing the wrong thing. I'm just, I'm just going to put that out there. It's, it's not very nice of me, but, um, but that's my instinct. Um, I have this wonderful friend. He actually serves uh, in Medford. He's... Um, a Samoan pastor, and his name is Taoliata. And I took a lot of time really trying to learn his name because I wanted to do that out of respect. Uh, And his name has this great meaning. It means the sun went down and they were still fighting. (laughs) I want that name! (laughs) This this is me. I I rise and I want to... take on the world, and I want to make changes, and I want to do differently. And before I came here, I was leading rallies or participating in rallies uh, for climate, and I'd get to stand up there and yell and get people yelling and waving their placards and, you know, we want clean energy now. And, you know, it's, it's a system of adversity. I mean, adversarialism. It's like... I imagine myself on one side and other people on this other side. And I get to cast myself as the good guy, because of course, right? You know, Joan of Arc, come on. But these people are left in what position do I, there's a default position that leaves them with. And it's not the good guy if I've already claimed that for myself. And I get to do constant battle and it's easy because I always get to feel good about how I'm making, making battle. And I'm doing good, and I, you know, my sword is glinting in the sun. Um, but, you know, maybe I'm just doing the same thing. I'm actually not helpful at all. Maybe, I don't know, I've been struggling with this one. I have no answer for this. Jesus didn't let people walk on him. Jesus had a goal He stood up to those who taunted him or, uh, but he also gave everything for peace. There was a time when it was time for that. And when Peter takes out his sword, when Jesus is arrested and uses it, Jesus says, nope, we're not doing that. My inner Joan of Arc could not be more frustrated 
Like, we're not doing that. What, are you kidding? They're just going to slaughter us. You know, they're not going to stop doing what they're doing unless somebody comes up and pushes on them. So this peacemaking circle training is run by a man named Saram. I'm going to butcher his last name, Fung. He's a Cambodian, basically a Cambodian refugee, resettled here when he was 12, born into war, civil war, from a time that he was very young, very young. He handled uh, weaponry. And they were in refugee camps in Thailand. They made it across the border, which was landmined. These families had to cross this landmines to get across the border in Thailand. And he came to America, and the family was so wounded, and there was so much trauma that he became, him and his brothers became a gang and uh, started doing terrible things. And they were in Boston, and there were n- numbers of gangs there. Well, he worked in Boston. I'm not sure if that's where he was when he was in gang life. And he credits everything changing for him from this woman named Molly and this uh, com- uh, corp- uh, organization called Roca. And Molly would go out, and many of these workers, and talk with gang members and try to gain their trust. And they didn't do it with a sword. They didn't do it by being righteous and self-righteous and jumping on the horse and knowing that you have it right, but by admitting that we're all really broken and we all do things that we don't agree with and that you're not my enemy, even if you're in the middle of being quite violent at the moment. And he changed his life. He started studying, started working for Roca and becoming the guy who interfaced with the gang members in the area in Boston. Um, he studied a peacemaking circle from the Klingit people of the First Nations people in Yukon and was gifted some of the ceremonial practices by them in order to bring this into a place where it could do even more good. He brought it to Boston and he began restorative justice circles, especially young men especially young black men who are so traumatized by racism in their communities and often don't have a place to, um, to process and understand what's happening to them. And these men are often, young men are seen as far more dangerous than your so you white 13-year-old and a black 13-year-old. You're going to ascribe a lot more dangerous things to our black 13-year-olds, whether they deserve it or not, because it's never about deserving, right? It's always about just where we are. Nobody intends, well, there are some, unfortunately, I've run into people who intend harm, but most of us are just trying to live well and do the best we can. And so they, instead of incarcerating this 13-year-old, and you know it doesn't work, it's traumatizing on trauma, on trauma, on trauma. But it's also important that there's accountability. And so these peacemaking circles, they bring these kids in, and they work hours and hours in these circles, calling forth honesty. And the, the kids don't just, it's not just about them confessing in a group. Everybody in the group speaks truth, shares their brokenness, is honest about their struggles. And the kids learn that they're not alone. So in uh, Seattle, he's recently moved to Seattle, there was a test case, and I got to meet the young gentleman who was involved in that. His name is Ramon. And uh, he is now 17, and he was 15 when he was arrested. 
He's a young black man. And an absolute wonderful, wonderful young man has been through two years of this after armed burglary and helped lead some of the circles. Isn't that what we want for our kids? And instead of trading in the coinage of empire, we shifted and we shared loaves and fishes. I got to be in the circle with a lot of folks uh, I've never had conversations with. Prosecutors, prosecuting attorneys, public attorneys, uh, uh, parole officers, uh, incarcerate, uh, people that work with youth in incarcerated um, settings because Rome had invited them into the peacemaking process. While we were there, one of the prosecuting attorneys said she had turned over 11 of her cases to Rome. I got to hear the defense attorney weep whose 13-year-old client was going to be charged to the full extent. And another one weep when she said that over Christmas she had one, he was 15. And yeah, he was a knucklehead. But it was Christmas, and he was incarcerated, and no one would come and get him from his family to take him home for Christmas. And what what does that leave these young people with? There has to be a better way. So I'm making a public commitment to try to figure out how to put down my sword. And it's funny, but it also hurts a little because I've really relied on that. And I want to ask forgiveness for all the times that sword has caused harm instead of good, when I intended good. And all the times I was just venting my rage at how unfair everything is and how helpless I feel about that. I'm going to participate in more trainings, and I don't know what that will be for me or anyone else. But I'm willing to learn Jesus' way, and I'm willing to ask myself, how many loaves do I have? And see if I can find a way to sit down on the grass and share. And like it or not, most of you are going to come this journey with me. <laughs> because you're stuck with me. The bishop appointed me, and here I am. But um, however you feel about the work, um, I commit to coming at it as holy as I can. And I'm, I'm listening, so, yeah. So let's take a minute and just uh, have a quiet moment of reflection.